Welcome to the Pharmacine podcast. I'm Kira Duffy and a member of the English Pharmacy Board. Today we're talking about advanced therapy medicinal products and it's wonderful to be joined by Anne Black and David Caulfield to discuss this very exciting and topical area. Anne Black was appointed a fellow of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society in 2020 on account of her exemplary commitment to quality and healthcare. Anne is Regional Quality Assurance Specialist with the Specialist Pharmacy Service. David Caulfield is an Assistant Director of Pharmacy at Newcastle Hospitals and also works for various biotech companies. Both Anne and Dave are pharmacists and also qualified persons. Anne and Dave, a very warm welcome to the show. Anne, how did you get interested in ATMPs. Thanks, Kira. Well, um, as you mentioned, I'm a QA pharmacist uh, by background, and I was working in Newcastle. ATMPs, as I'll shorten them to, if that's okay, haven't always been classed as medicinal products. They were really previously um, biological cell and tissue products, if you like, and not, not regulated as medicines. But by the time 2008 came round, they had been classed as medicinal products. And it turned out that in our hospital, there was some manufacture of these products going on. And we needed to be able to bring that manufacturing under the license of the trust at the time. So I was um, engaged and got involved to help harmonize the quality systems. We were very used to manufacturing products in the pharmacy environment, uh, making a whole range of items. but in the, in the cellular therapies, we had no experience, but conversely, the cellular therapy team knew how to manufacture cellular products, but they didn't have all of the QA and infrastructure required to maintain an MHRA license. So that was how I first got involved. But what I realized very quickly was actually we were manufacturing investigational medicinal products for clinical trials. And these clinical trials weren't coming through the pharmacy clinical trials team. And also I managed, I um, found out that we were using some unlicensed medicines, which was which were cellular products, and um, realized these weren't coming under the governance of the unlicensed medicines policy. Therefore, really, we needed to harmonize this. I noticed straight away that there was a, an absence of, of pharmacist oversight, if you like. And so um, really, since then, I've moved away a little bit from the manufacturing side, um, although I still am very interested in it. But what I've been really making um, quite a mission of is trying to put in place some governance around ATMPs and making sure that these medicines are recognized as medicinal products and have the, um, you know, the, the, the governance that's required for medicinal products wherever they're used. Lovely. Can you tell our listeners what is governance? There's two main levels of governance. The one is the national governance, and then there's local governance. Now, at a national level, um, we're talking about, if we're talking about a marketed ATMP, or marketing, holding a marketing authorization, then the, the governance that's required is for a hospital, perhaps, if, to become a commission centre. So they have to be... Um, onboarded by NHS England in England and um, you know uh, the developed administrations have their own arrangements with the Scottish Medicines Consortium etc 
And so you need to become a nominated site, and that is part of the governance arrangement. You also need to have certain accreditations in place. So you might need to have a human tissue authority license. Um, you might need to have accreditation from a body which um, inspects the places that handle cells and tissues. Um, and so there's that sort of level of, 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 of national um, accreditation, if you like. And then also the pharmaceutical companies themselves may also need to um, on, on board the site and um, you know, have in place perhaps some contracting. Now, this is where it comes down to local governance and the local governance recognizes that ATMPs can be very complex and can be very disruptive to NHS business as usual on a day-to-day -day basis. So really there needs to be some proactive um, agreement from a, a trust level board that they want to be involved with ATMPs, that they know what's coming and that they're accepting um, that the, the particular product. So first and foremost, they need an ATMP policy which tells people how to get that governance in place and then a process for um, undertaking the governance. And that needs to be in place really for marketed products, but also for investigational medicinal products and for um, unlicensed medicines when they're ATMPs. So yeah, within Newcastle, we've got five manufacturing sites and I was based as the head of quality within the main pharmacy manufacturing site where we were making conventional medicines. And, uh, Whenever I heard Anne talk about these advanced therapy medicinal products, it just sounded so strange and unusual that I found it incredibly interesting. As Anne mentioned, actually, we were trying to, to do some cross-pollination and to share some of the good practices we had um, within our regulatory framework here within the main pharmacy production unit and uh, apply those systems within the advanced therapy and medicinal product field. So what I did was spend some time down there looking at their processes and seeing how we could actually make optimize those and ensure that that it helped the manufacturing process and that transitioned into because I think probably what's different to advanced therapy medicinal products particularly the ones that are cellular based is that it's a continuum of manufacturing and actually that manufacturing process starts from the procurement which is the harvesting of the materials which are used to manufacture that these processes are derived and, and start very much in academia and you know a huge portion of the products that we're seeing now have started their lives there rather than in a conventional pharmaceutical manufacturer and that that means that actually a knowledge of hospital systems and the procurement mechanisms put quality assurance and pharmacists working in hospitals in a very strong position to understand what could go wrong and how to design those processes. And then really where that transition, because I wanted more exposure to the manufacturing processes, was after I became a qualified person involved in the certification of, of medicines, actually I started um, working outside of the NHS and, and offering that service to really facilitate the manufacture of medicines and share that knowledge and understanding with smaller biotech companies to ensure that actually they could maximize the potential that these, that these have to benefit patients. So you have exposure to a wide range of different kinds of ATMPs? Yeah, so first of all, we, we make somatic cellular therapies and tissue engineered products here in Newcastle. Outside of the NHS, yeah, the majority of the products that I'm working with are T-cell based. Some of them have been genetically modified and some of them have not. I think we'll talk a little bit more about that in the future. 
um, and also have experience in actually manufacturing of gene therapies as well. So yeah, the broad range and the, and the three core elements of types of ATMPs that exist. And that brings us in nicely into the next question. Um, Anne, can you describe what are ATMPs, advanced therapy medicinal products? Yes, I can. But first of all, I just want you to think about um, if you were to go into a community pharmacy and look at all of the, the boxes on the shelves, perhaps what you would be seeing there is um, a lot of tablets, etc., capsules, all different different formulations. And their, their, their starting material, if you like, is a small molecule chemical. And they've been made in big pharma often and in, in, in big batches in a very um, highly automated way. And I suppose what I'm going to say is ATMPs are kind of very, very different to that. There's two concepts that you need to be aware of. As Dave has just mentioned, in some cases, um, you can make a very personalized medicine for a patient. And that is where the starting material, the cell or the tissue comes from the patient itself, or him or herself. And um, they, um, they have that starting material procured, and then it is taken to a manufacturing unit where it is manufactured and you know tested and all of the things that go alongside that and comes back to the hospital as a medicine which is individualized for that patient. The alternative to that is that you can have an allogeneic product and an allogeneic product is where a similar process occurs, but the starting material comes from a donor. And so you have a donor perhaps who is um, donating some cells would go into a, a master cell bank would be grown up and expanded and multiplied. And then that master cell bank donation can be used to create a batch of more than one. And that would be an allogeneic product, which can be used for a patient. Yeah, and I suppose Anne, one of the big benefits of an allogeneic product is that whenever you're doing a single manufacturing process but can treat many, it'll change the cost of goods of the product. These are very labour-intensive processes and as such financially challenging to healthcare systems to deliver. What, what sort of conditions uh, are treated with ATMPs? there's a whole range of, of, of clinical specialisms which are being impacted by ATMPs now. I think as you look at the horizon, it's really very exciting. Many of the products that we have at the moment are linked to haematology or ophthalmology, but actually, as you look at the clinical trials that are in place, whilst about 50% of them are involved in haematology and oncology, which is hugely exciting for patients, actually, there isn't really a clinical specialism that ATMPs won't touch in the future. So um, they're going to be uh, they're going to be a key part of management of, of many different types of clinical specialisms as we go forward. And in particular, gene therapies have really come into their own of late. Um, and there's a big pipeline of gene therapies uh, coming through. Can you paint us a picture of how these therapies work within the body? If you imagine um, virus or, uh, you know, if, it, if, you, if you have cold symptoms, then it's really great because your immune system kicks into action and um, fights that. It recognises that you've got uh, a foreign invader in your body and it will fight it and you'll, you'll get better. Now, if you have a, a disease uh, such as perhaps a, a blood cancer, um, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if your white blood cells, your, your T cells, 
if they were to be able to recognize that and attack it and kill it in exactly the same way as we've just talked about for maybe it's the common cold. Um, of course, that can't happen because cancer cells are really good at evading the immune system. So if we take the example of a, of a, of a marketed product such as a, um, a, a CAR T cell, which is um, a chimeric antigen receptor T cell, then essentially what has happened is the patient's own T cells have been modified outside of the body in a manufacturing unit. They've been genetically modified to make the cells recognize those cancer cells. And therefore, when they're put back into the body as a, as a medicine for that patient, they will then attack and kill those cancer cells. So there really are game changers for patients. And with CAR T cells in particular, there are two um, you know, well-documented uh, side effects, one being cytokine release syndrome um, and one, um, one being um, neurological side effects. I think that's the thing that is very different certainly from my role where I also get involved in in assisting the adoption of what we consider to be reasonably disruptive therapies that actually the patients need to stay with us you know up to a month after they've had those infusions because of the risk of these side effects uh, but strangely or not strangely at all actually the side effects are often indications that the medicine itself is working so we've got off target effects as well as on target side effects so that's the, the reassurance to the patient. But at the moment, there are significant side effects associated with that. But as with everything, as it evolves, the next generation of these medicines are actually coming along and have much improved side effect profile and much more specificity in targeting the affected cells. Yeah, and that, that is going to be great news for patients. And it's why really all pharmacists do need to understand about these exciting medicines I suppose one other thing that, that comes to mind is that we're sat with diseases that are very small patient numbers at the moment. What are going to be the challenges as we start to look towards solid tumours or larger disease states? You're absolutely right, of course, and there are many challenges. And, and one of the challenges, I think, for the NHS is to be able to, um, and for pharmacy in particular, is to be able to... Um, implement these products consistently and equitably across the NHS. Um, and, you know, at the moment, we've got um, a good number of sites and centres across the UK, but we're needing to in increase that. And we need to increase the knowledge in the other sectors, because as we get more and more patients who are being held, uh, who are being um, delivered ATMPs, receiving ATMPs, then of course, you know, our, our colleagues in primary care, our community pharmacy colleagues, our GP pharmacy colleagues are all going to be needing to have an awareness of these products because their patients, you know, may be on them. They may be coming to them for advice um, and you need to uh, need to understand what these medicines are to be able to be in a position to give that advice safely. Um, so in, in order to um, help to facilitate this um, I'm fortunate enough to chair a really vibrant group of, of pharmacists called the Pan-UK Pharmacy Working Group for ATMPs. And they have produced lots of guidance. And in particular, um, what I want to talk to you about is a, a, a set of guidance called Pharmacy Institutional Readiness Guidance. So institutional readiness is a concept 
um, that was really um, innovated by Dr. Andrew Webster of the University of York. And we've taken that concept in pharmacy in our group. And essentially what it does is it's everything that you need to do from a pharmacy perspective to be able to introduce an ATMP safely. And we've put in place institutional readiness guidance for the different types of ATMPs that exist. And the aim of that is to consistently have a pharmacy response in a hospital, which will enable a, a standardised, nobody's ever going to be doing it exactly the same, but we can standardise on the principles of governance, the principles of operational requirements, and the, the clinical principles for, um, for implementing these products and adopting them. And, and where can people find these documents? Um, so two places, but um, the, 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 the main place for all of the pharmacy documentation is on the Specialist Pharmacy Service website. But the ATMP documents are available open access. Um, and so if your um, hospital, if you work in a hospital, are wanting to implement, then it's a really good place to start. We've got advice on governance and uh, as well as this operationalizing and, and, and advice on things like side effects uh, for CAR-Ts. Uh, there's a lot of real good clinical information on there too. Kira, one of the things that I really enjoy being involved in is actually it seems to have changed the relationship between the pharmaceutical industry and the NHS because we're so interdependent on each other. Uh, the NHS is sat there with patients with intractable diseases that there are no treatments for. And I think it's really important to say, you know, looking forward, it's, it's so exciting that actually we're offering treatments to patients that previously there was nothing. But of course, the manufacturer needs to be assured that actually they're going to get a good quality starting material because that's integral to, to them being able to manufacture a suitable product. So actually, when we look at scale up and and broadening out manufacture of these i think that that's the strength of this new collaboration that we have together in this new relationship is that we can actually help to inform the product design and i know anne's been involved in creating guidance to industry on how to develop products that actually are less disruptive to the nhs so if we design the products um, at an early stage mindful of how that will be implemented and be less disruptive to the nhs it also in you know, assists, one, that we use it in a safe and as it was intended, but two, it's it's a lot easier for the NHS to implement. What do you see as the key challenges to delivering ATMPs within the hospitals? The one thing that's obviously very different about these is that if you make something for a specific person, you need to make sure that that gets back to the person that it was made for because the side effects that we talk about, the knowns are all based on that infrastructure delivering what it needs to do. So labeling and putting unique identifiers onto this and that unique identifier, tracking the product all the way through its life cycle, and then that coming back to the, the original patient has been one of the bits that is so important. And actually there's been a lot of learning, and a lot of sharing from the, the stem cell transplant world, where there's ISBT labeling and unique identifiers that have you know, a lot of similar systems that allow us to achieve that. 
one of the other big challenges, I suppose, is temperature. The temperature that a lot of these products are delivered at, Anna, you've done a lot of work in that area. Yes, I mean, I think logistics and what we would traditionally call cold chain is absolutely key. You know, the advice really is that we need, whenever you're implementing one of these products, we need to have a dummy run, if you like, to ensure that systems are as fail safe as they absolutely possibly can. Um, we haven't got onto the expense of these products, but I'm, I'm sure we'll come on to that. Um, but, you know, we, we can't afford either for the patient who's waiting for that treatment or for the NHS um, to be able to lose these treatments. I think the other challenge that's very interesting around autologous ATMPs in particular is that you've, you know, you've got a patient who is desperately in need of this treatment and often it is time critical. Now, if there is a problem in the manufacturing process, perhaps due to uh, poor quality starting material or another type of deviation that's occurred during manufacture, then you can end up with a product that doesn't meet its specification. I mean, I think the one thing I would say is that often it's the patients most in need that end up with out of specification products and sometimes particularly in, in the hematology sphere and but we see it in tissue engineer products whenever we look at the ocular products for limbal stem cell deficiency actually the patients that most need it that have the poorest starting material and therefore end up with a, a product that doesn't quite meet the arbitrary or the the defined specifications the question we have to ask ourselves is Is it ethical not to give that product to the patient, even though it doesn't meet its marketing authorization, if there is still a chance that it will do some good? And so we've been working through this, um, you know, in in relation to ATMPs over the last few years. And um, there is now some guidance available for out of specification manufacture, which, again, um, involves governance at the organization for the patient who's going to receive receive the product it also involves governance from a financial perspective to understand how the payment for that product is going to work Um, and of course it's critical that you have the manufacturer's involvement to understand that the product is safe so clinicians will need to make um, risk benefit decisions on a clinical basis for their individual patient, taking into account all of this information and the role of the pharmacist in this process to, to, assure, to assure the quality and assure the governance is, is another really important role, which is completely unique to ATMPs. So you can have pharmacist involvement in the clinical team uh, reviewing the product. You can have pharmacist involvement with the logistics, with the delivery. And Dave, you're a pharmacist and you're involved very much in the manufacturing and the quality assurance of the medicine when it's leaving the manufacturing unit. Can you give us a little bit of insight into the types of problems that you could encounter during manufacture? Yeah, and I think Anne's right, just to follow on for her perspective, what I love about being in this field is that it's patient-centric. If we're making decisions that are in the interests of the patient, the medicines regulator has been taking really pragmatic approaches. So the, the, comp, the manufacturing process for these are incredibly complicated. You know, it, it goes over up to two weeks, maybe even longer, and is incredibly manual, labour intensive. There's a lot of work towards automation, which will allow scale up and again, allow consistency. There still is, of course, points whenever 
the manufacturing process doesn't go as it was intended to go. Yeah, my role in the manufacturing side as a qualified person is actually about differentiating and taking aspects of the batch that's clearly compliant or the white uh, batch, you know, everything's as, as exactly as you would want to the batch that if we think of a Venn diagram of, you know, a black batch, which is clearly not suitable for the patient. And if we look at the overlap in the gray, it's trying to discern those products that sit within the gray and whether or not, as Anne mentions, in collaboration with the clinical teams and understanding the patient's condition, where the risks sit to that from a GMP perspective, where the risks sit from a patient perspective and making the right decision for the patient in those aspects. Yeah, so as a QP, it's a very, very different role for you, I take it, than, than, than releasing a batch of you know, thousands of tablets, for example. Yeah, it is. But actually, because it's so patient centric and so personal, it, it is very different. And, and of course, it does link to it's a it's a barrier at the moment as well to the scale of these products, because it is very labor intensive from a QP perspective, because as well, a lot of these products are early phase clinical trial where the knowledge management is just starting with them and the processes are being honed and learned during that, that those early phases. So. Yes, it is different, but actually there's a lot that's parallel as well. The principles are all the same. And, you know, I think it's about understanding how it applies and the, and making sure that we're always comfortable and, you know, that we've done the right thing from a patient perspective. So which of the advanced therapies are we seeing growth in at the moment? I would say the answer to that is we're seeing a lot of growth in, in gene therapies. If you think about um, the personalized medicine agenda that's, that's highly prominent at the moment and the, uh, the advent of genomic testing, mm -hmm. then this is really opening more doors. If you imagine that we are able to um, detect missing or defective genes, we can then innovate and come up with gene therapies to um, provide cures for these diseases. And, you know, we're starting to see that happen with some of the adeno-associated viruses, and it's really very exciting for patients. This to me is one of the most exciting, and it comes from knowledge. It comes from, as you say, the whole genomic understanding, and it's backward engineering, looking at where is there a problem and how do we actually fix it? It's not, a lot of our medicines are, treating conditions, treating, uh, you know, and, and modifying that in a very short term. But this is actually curative, where we're changing the genetic sequences and curing diseases. Again, this is a, we're seeing this primarily in very small patient groups, orphan drugs. But the promise that these have is, is incredible. It's a you know, single one-time treatment, we hope. And then, you know, all that, then the cost clearly associated with those is very significant. But the arguments that are being made is that if we look at this as a, a lifetime cost and the cost to NHS, to social care, actually this is taking people from where they needed a lot of support to potentially very little or no support for the, for the rest of their lives. Of course, and the, the, the huge impact of, of not just treating symptoms, of, of treating the illness, of curing the illness has a huge knock-on societal effect. 
Thank you both so much for your time. This has been such an interesting conversation. We've discussed everything from CAR T therapies to gene therapies. We've talked about governance. We've talked about this great collaborative approach between the NHS and industry, helping to deliver these advanced therapy medicinal products to patients. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great. Thank you, Kira. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, no, it has. And genuinely would encourage anyone with the smallest bit of interest to get involved in this field because it's incredible it's beyond what you would believe could be achieved and yeah it's the future thank you for listening to the rps pharmacy podcast if you know someone interesting from the world of pharmacy and beyond please get in touch with the hashtag rps pharmacy on twitter see you next time